You're listening to the Gnomes Army Podcast, coming at you pre-taped from Mom's face. Hey, Mom! The meatloaf! We want it now! It's the Vancouver Canucks Hockey Podcast, with the sense of entitlement that nobody saw coming. What is she doing? I never know what she's doing back there. Now, here are your hosts, Jeremy Davis and Joseph Dale Burke. All right, and welcome to the third episode of the Canucks Army Podcast. I will be one of your hosts today. I am J.D. Burke, the managing editor of Canucks Army, and I am joined, as always, by co-host Jeremy Davis, one of our esteemed writers. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing well. I have a new microphone today. Awesome, awesome. I think that uh, the humming issue will be gone that our listeners picked up on. We're hoping so. I'm also in a different room. That might help. Got all your bases covered. Yeah, we're going big. Speaking of going big, the Panthers, the you know, go big or go home, right? Holy hell, what did they do to their logo and their jerseys? They did something. Okay, like, do you like them, though? The new look, the new logo? I, I don't mind them. I'd say there's elements to it that I do like. Um, quirky little things like the on the, the white jerseys, which I guess would be the away ones. They've got the red lacing that crosses at the uh, the neck, or just below the neck, and that actually makes for the Florida flag, I believe. So I think that's kind of neat, and I and I kind of dig the the you know the arm logos or whatever. But other than that, it's I don't know. I think it's a disaster. <laughs> Truth yeah. be told, I mean they've got the uh, you know on their home jerseys they say Panthers, on their away jerseys they say Florida, which is very baseball of them oh i didn't actually notice that i just realized that the other day like on the sidebar things no like right on top of the logo where it's got the kind of arcing word pattern above the panther oh right 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 so in the actual crest yeah see i think the the consensus happens to be that like the the crest is fine but that Team Canada 2014 ripoff abomination of a pattern is less fine. I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of the crest either, though. I'm just a hater. You are a hater. You know what? I don't. I like when logos change. I'm a big logo fan. And I like when new things happen. And I think they should happen more often. Everyone should just change their logos. Except for the good ones. Does that make any sense? Um, <laughs> there, there's certainly no subjective element to that, but I mean, I, I could feel you. I mean, the Canucks going back to the stick and rink, it has to happen. It absolutely has to happen. But, you know, one thing I will say, though, is I'm glad that the Panthers, like many teams before them, got rid of the, uh, you know that piping on the inside of the jersey? Yes. And it kind of looked like an apron? Yes. I don't know why that was ever a thing. But I'm glad that they finally put the nail in that coffin for that fran- for their franchise. Next up, Colorado. Your move. Yeah. I'm going to guess they're going to be slow to react. Well, Patrick Waugh is a little bit behind the times on everything, especially the Corsicas and Fenwicks. Yes, he does not seem to be paying attention to them. No, sorry. But uh, speaking of paying attention to stuff, have you been um, paying attention to the radio today? 
uh, TSN1040 had Craig Button on the show, and he kind of kicked a, a bit of a hornet's, uh, hornet's nest when he uh, played with the idea of Logan Brown to the Canucks at fifth overall. And, and you know, t- to be fair to Craig Button, he's really been on the, the Logan Brown bandwagon since about the, the under-18s, and he's been pumping his tires something fierce for the last couple of weeks. But um, that wasn't so well-received in Canucks Army group chat. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, even as just a possibility? Yeah, I'll agree on the part that he has been banging that drum for a little while. This isn't really a new thing. He did a um, a mock draft a couple of weeks ago and had them taking Logan Brown. So he is uh, gaga over this guy. Loves him. That would not be a move that I would make personally. It is hard to dismiss Craig Button sometimes. He did have Brock Besser in the top 10 last year. That's true, and he also right. had Vertanen at the, like 44th. Right, so... Uh, in, in his final draft rankings. He's in our heads. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, here's one thing I keep thinking about with Logan Brown. We're talking about a six foot six center that's well over a point per game. I feel like instinctively, uh, PCS, which was uh, at Connects Army before, would have loved Logan Brown. Uh, perhaps they wouldn't have liked his chances to develop into a high-end, impactful NHLer, but they would have liked his chances of developing into an NHLer. Okay. And PGPS loves him. Yes, PGPS loves him as well. I think his prospect profile went up today, and he scored what an eighty percent rating. I believe that's right, four to five. Yeah, four to five, so, and I think Jason Arnett was the highest end of his comparables. Yeah, small-ish sample there, um, but high scoring. Very, very tall. You don't find a lot of guys like that. I feel like Logan Brown is a prospect that people might be overlooking almost because of his size. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Nick Ritchie in the sense that Nick Ritchie in this draft year was actually putting up phenomenal numbers. He played a great power forward game, and a lot of people saw him being compared to the Jake Vertanens, Nikolai Ehlers, and William Nylanders of the world, and they had this, this resistant... Uh, sort of take on the situation where instead of evaluating Nick Ritchie for the prospect he was, they saw people over-evaluating him for his size, and the blowback was was ridiculous, whereas this is a prospect that legitimately could have filled into the top 10. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that with Logan Brown this year, where he's a, over a point-per-game player, he's six foot six, and, you know, I think some of the some of the reasoning for Craig Button growing on a player like Logan Brown so much is because one of the biggest concerns of his this season was his skating. And if you watched him at the under-18s in North Dakota, his skating was vastly improved. So I think, again, what's happening is Logan Brown is is working his way into a conversation where he might not be worthy of a fifth overall selection, but I think the blowback is getting a bit extreme where the pendulum is swinging perhaps a little bit too far. And we're still talking about a very talented center. He brings size to the rink. And, you know, it's. I would be very happy with him in the 10 to 15 range. Like, am I crazy, or is that a good place for Logan Brown to fall? No, that's pretty much right on. Um, I would even be okay with him a little bit uh, higher than that, towards the very back of the top 10. I certainly wouldn't take him at 5, but one of the key things there is that he is a center. And... Um, there's only so many of them in the top end of that draft. There's obviously the first pick, Austin Matthews, and then after that, Pierre-Luc Dubois is the guy that you're looking at. Beyond that, there's a, a group of four, Tyson Jost, Clayton Keller, uh, Mike McLeod, and Logan Brown, and you're 
basically taking your pick of uh, who you think is the best, I would say it's probably going Dubois, Keller, Jost, Brown. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. But uh, you could make arguments, especially with that size, and there's a lot of comparisons out there to Joe Thornton, and um, that might be a little bit lofty because Joe Thornton himself was a first overall pick. He's a former scoring champion, uh, one of the greatest setup men in the game, and one of the greatest beards I've ever seen. Yep, especially with that that little gray strip in the middle. (laughs) I think we're going to find out after the playoffs that that's actually by design. You know what, though? like Logan Brown, to me, doesn't strike me as much of uh, a a Joe Thornton player as he does Ryan Getzlaff. And I think that might be a more fair comparison if for no other reason than Getzlaff, kind of like Brown, was on perhaps the lower end of the production scale. Like, like people often forget this, but Ryan Getzlaff is an exception to the rule. <laughs> his, his production in junior up to his draft didn't necessarily uh, resonate with what you might expect from somebody who is going to develop into a high-end center at the NHL level. Yeah, that's right. Right, so uh, I think a, a more apt comparison, and perhaps one that's more fair to Brown, is is Ryan Getzlaff, which is still pretty lofty given all that Getzlaff has accomplished. But I think if you're looking at it based on what Brown's accomplished to date and what Getzlaff had done with his junior career at the time he was drafted, that might be a little bit more fair to Brown than Thornton. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think a lot of the comparisons were stylistic as well. I don't know if, yeah. if they've uh, looked into what kind of beard Logan Brown can grow. I assume it's not very good, <laughs> given his age. Beardalytics? Yeah. It's a big thing, actually. Mike Fail was uh, talking about that today. I believe he's coming up with Beardsy. And he's oh, going geez. to uh, explore the correlation between beards and winning. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, well, there's no arguing. I mean, have you noticed that in the Stanley Cup Finals, the teams that have the biggest beards are always there? Absolutely, and without a doubt, that means Beards come first, Winnie comes after. Yep, I, I think it's pretty obvious. I don't even see the need to test it anymore. I just say, write that down. Everyone follows the code. We're good. You know what, while we're on the topic of like random, fringe, non-existent, not worth our time analytics, I'm a big believer in number analytics, like jersey number analytics. Okay. So when I saw it, not to steal Mike Fails Thunder, but um, Nikita Triampkin, can you really see a defenseman having success with the number 88? Seems iffy. Charlie Coyle, he'll never develop into what we thought he would. Why? We're number three. I've thrown my name in the hat. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's my uh, bizarre fringe analytics for you. That is unusual. Yeah, I think Burns could win the cup if he'd switch his number to something more reasonable for a defender. But it looks like a BB. That's true, that's true. And, and Brent Burns, I think, is just the exception to the rule, in not only in terms of number or style of play, he's an exception to the rule in terms of humanity. Like, he barely qualifies as a human. He's really more of a human-animal hybrid, and I think that's what gives him some of his impressive skill. Do you watch any South Park? I watch a whole lot of South Park. Okay, then you know where I'm going with this, right? Man, bear, pig, I'm super serial. Yeah. I know. Brent Burns is man, bear, pig. He is. <laughs> well, that was a fun tangent. I think Al Gore might come in to comment on this at some point. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'll hear about it from Enmu. <laughs> but uh, while we're on the topic of draft eligible centers, I think somebody that's really picking up steam for me, at least, is Clayton Keller. 
you know, he checked in at the combine and he measured at about 5'10", which, you know, it, it seems like small potatoes. But this is a guy we were all expecting to measure at about 5'9", maybe even 5'8", depending on who you listen to. And you combine that with the fact that uh, Gareth Ole of Jets Nation has actually put out some of his uh, era and age-adjusted production numbers mm-hmm. for the USHL. And it shows that Clayton Keller has actually been the single most productive member of the USHL in his draft year for as long as they've been keeping records. Well, how about that? Uh, that I don't know, man. When you, you combine those two things, he's not looking so short. The production is is lofty, to say the least. I think you can make a case for Keller at five. Yeah, I, I believe, and I don't have anything in front of me. I'm going off of memory, but... Um when you're talking about the U.S. national team development uh, program, USMTDP, didn't he have, I think he's got the second highest all-time points per game right after Austin Matthews. Um, I don't know if you can confirm or deny that, but I think that's the case, and that's above Jack Eichel, Phil Kessel, Patrick Kane. You know what, you could be right, because the, I don't know, if, like, that would obviously not account for error and age adjustments, right? No, it's just, and he also uh, has played more games, and this is points per game, I think, and uh, my apologies to everyone if I'm dead wrong on this. It's either he's way up there in terms of points per game, or way up there in terms of points, because I also know that he has one of the highest, um, most games played among all uh, national team development program players. Yeah, the point is Clayton Keller is legit. Yeah, he's real good. You know, it's kind of funny. You were going into this draft kind of wondering, where, where's the center depth going to fall? And you, it's just, it didn't look like it was going to be as deep as last year. But, you know, the closer we're getting to the draft, it's really starting to pick up, and you're starting to see guys like Logan Brown force their name into the conversation of the top ten. Tyson Jost, after what he did at the, uh, the U18s, there's no way he's making it past twelve. Um, Clayton Keller, same thing. He's looking a bit taller than everyone might have expected. It's looking like a really solid class down the middle. Yeah, especially in that uh, top half of the first round. Yeah, I, I, you know what? There's a, a pretty noticeable drop-off after that. I think Mike McLeod is about as well as you're doing outside the top 15, but even Mike McLeod, I mean, he's got you know third-line potential. Yeah, and apparently I mean, he's that's... a playoff performer, according to the Keens. Oh, third overall, baby. <laughs> Can you imagine if Kekalainen did that? Oh, that would be amazing. Uh, we can dream. Yep, because you know what? That would mean one of Dubois or Kachuk or Pugliarvi is guaranteed to fall to us. Take our pick. Yep. Wouldn't that be swell? But, yeah, I don't know. I Do you see the Canucks taking Logan Brown fifth overall? I know I just strayed from this topic, but... <laughs> but I... Just to go full circle, is that something you could see them doing? No, I don't think so. I mean, it depends on who's available there. But we're starting to think that uh, it really looks like Edmonton is going to go for Matthew Kachuk. Yep. And if they trade, whoever uh, comes into the fourth spot might want to take him as well. Like, he's a hot commodity right now. Everyone wants yeah. them some Matt Kachuk. And I'm okay with that because I want me some Pierre-Luc Dubois. Yes, I would much prefer Dubois. Which, you know... D- isn't an indictment of how I feel about Kachuk, but I think Dubois is the far superior of the two prospects, especially given that he can play a premier position, and he addresses the Canucks' most pertinent need, and that is a succession plan for the Cedians. That's right. 
Now, how about this? This is just a quick little um, side tangent. I was actually planning on getting to later, but it makes sense right now. Um, I think something came up on the radio today about the possibility, not like this is a rumor, but just the hypothetical possibility of trading Yannick Hansen and Ben Hutton for the fourth overall pick. And certain radio host said, no, thank you. Your thoughts? Uh, my first thought is I'm, I'm picking up secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry if you wouldn't trade Hanson and Hutton for fourth overall, like pawn the duchy on the left hand side, Mon. Like that is such an obvious home run. Yeah. I can't even put into words. Hanson is on the books for what, like another two seasons? At which point he'll be 32. That's okay. 32-year-old Yannick Hansen is a third-liner. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll even, for argument's sake, concede that he's a second-liner. So you've got... Say middle six. Middle six, sure. Why not? Everyone's happy. Let's let's just say he's a middle six or guaranteed for the next two seasons. Ben Hutton's shattering expectations. He looks like he could really be a middle-pairing defender. Heck, I wouldn't even rule out that he can be a, a fill-in on your first pairing when injuries happen. I can see right? that as a 2-3. Yeah, like a 2-3. And we're being really optimistic here. We really are. Yeah. Okay, so let's say that's the best you can get out of those two. How much closer are you to a Stanley Cup? Like, are, are those the building blocks? Either of them? Because Hansen in two years is a UFA. Yeah. you you got to sign him for a couple million bucks. Hutton is an RFA at the end of next season. You're starting to run out of cost-controlled years for Hutton, so... He's going to make a bunch of money next year. He's not going to make a ton, but, like, you know, these are all factors to consider. Well, just consider who's writing the contract, though. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. <laughs> he filled in, um, I don't know, say 25 or so games as a top-pairing defender-ish um, after Alex Edler went down. Near the end of the season, right? Yeah, Edler went down. Well, the more so um, right after Edler went down, he filled in as a top pairing defender. He did fairly well, and then it kind of started to catch up to him when uh, you know opponents realize what he means to uh, the Canucks defense, and they started going at him hard, and and he kind of tailed off, and then uh, they reworked the ice time a lot so that Dan Hamhees was carrying a pretty heavy load towards the end of the year, but. For a period of time there, he was doing a decent job as a top-pairing defender in his rookie season. So you never quite know where he's going to end up in his career. And, you, I mean, if he has another good season, if something happens and he has to fill in the top and he does well, you don't know how much money they're going to throw at him, considering what they're going to pay the other defenders. Right, which which only adds to my point. Like, Correct. part of the allure of a draft of a draft pick is that it guarantees you uh, and this is a quote directly from Moneyball, which I'm just finishing up. Draft picks owe to their franchise seven years of indentured servitude. And it's true. <laughs> you know, they they have no leverage. Their negotiating rights are, are like razor thin. And that's the beauty for, for a hockey team. And you, you take fourth overall, you know. If you've got Besser, Dubois, and Kachuk in your system, that's your first line of the future. Right, that's the entire crux of this hypothetical argument is if you get the fourth overall pick, you have your entire, you already have the fifth, you have your entire replaced top line right there. You got a left winger in Kachuk, you got a center in Dubois, 
and the only potential top line player you have in your system right now is a right winger. It's just a gift wrapped top line for you. There's no way in hell that you say no to that. Oh God, no. Of course, no one would ever offer that to you. No, of course it's not even like even Pete Shirelli wouldn't make that offer. No, there's there's nothing in it for him. No, I mean, I mean, I'm sure he he'd like Ben Hutton, given how his defense core looks, but um, not at that cost. No, I mean, I don't know, Peter Shirelli. This isn't really Canucks related, but I think he might be one of the most overrated general managers in the league. Like he inherited so much of that Boston Bruins team that won the cup, and he did everything in his power to dismantle it as quickly as he could. You know, it's it's the little things too. Wheeler for Peverly, come on, come on. <laughs> I don't know. I I think Shirelli gets far too much credit, but that's another topic well, for another I mean, podcast. Yeah, if your name's on the cup, you get credit. That's just how it works, deserved or not. Yeah, that's true. It's the way the cookie crumbles. But yeah, I don't know. I think if if you wouldn't say yes to that trade, you deserve to be fired post haste. <laughs> so. That, those are my thoughts. I'm sure you think much the same, but... <laughs> I'm in agreement with you. Yeah. Um, we've been a bit spacey so far. A bit uh, tangenty, as we usually are. But uh, I did want to talk about the whole idea of trading down at the draft. Um, kind of started this thought process with the idea of if you still really wanted to take Logan Brown, say that uh, whoever was picking fourth picked Dubois, and you figured that Logan Brown was the next best center. And uh, if you're an intelligent general manager, you figure, hey, Logan Brown is a 10 to 15 pick. I can recoup some value by trading down to that area and pick up another asset, right? So thought we might have a little discussion about trading down at the draft. Well, I mean, if you're going to go that route, too, you can't rule out that the Canucks might take a defenseman. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I think it's it's pretty well documented at this stage. that I'm Team Sergachev, and I think a few of the Canucks Army staff are too. I mean, if you move back, you've got your options. You can go from Sergachev to Jost to to Brown, and you know those are still some pretty fine prospects, especially Jost. Who I'm really looking forward to seeing play with uh, Brock Besser at UND next year. Yeah, right. So I think it kind of depends on the context of what's being offered, and if you feel like the value difference is being made up in the long run. Like, if you're getting an extra second rounder, I don't know. Maybe you do move down five spots. I mean, I would. Yeah. If the guy that you wanted at five, say that's Dubois, is gone, then you should absolutely consider it. Yeah, especially because I've never been convinced that the Canucks are anywhere as high on Matthew Kachuk as they said they are. Right. And and the reason I have that theory is because we've heard the Canucks, and, and mostly Jim Benning, talk about almost every prospect that might fall in the top 10. We've heard him talk about prospects that weren't in the top 10. And yet, all season long, there wasn't so much as a, you know, even a whisper about Kachuk. Like, seriously, I didn't hear a single word about Kachuk, even when the Canucks looked like they were going to fall in that range. So I think if Dubois is gone, trading down really might be the savvy play, because I don't think they're that invested in Kachuk as is. Yeah, I can see that. They really, um, like they're really interested in positional need right now, and yeah. it's gonna affect their view of who the best available player is and what they need is centermen and defensemen. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know for a fact that the Canucks have Yoel Levy at the top of their board on defense. Right, I've heard that as well. And I haven't heard them say a word about um, Alex Nylander either. Have you? No, I haven't heard a peep about Nylander either. That's actually a really good point. Right, so... It kind of adds to what we're saying, though, which is that the Canucks, they really want to get a center with right. this pick. a center, and, and if they were a bit further back, uh, it doesn't seem like they're going to trade down, but uh, if they were a bit further back, then it sounded like they were going to go for a defenseman, right? It's all about positional need. Yep, and you know what's funny is uh, I remember the certainty with which this marketplace thought that Chikrin was going to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny, like... I spoke to people out out east in Ontario, and yes, I, like I can tell you that Jim Benning scouted the hell out of Jacob Chikrin. Doesn't necessarily mean he liked him. Yeah. <laughs> like from what I could gather, Yuel Levy, then then Sergachev is their second D. I don't even know where where Chikrin falls, but I don't. Man, I guess it would have to be third. Uh, Despite you what think. we may have heard earlier in the uh, year, I don't think that he has Jake Bean above any of those three. Oh. I, again, I, I don't know where that came from. You know, maybe he mentioned him once in an interview. I don't think Jake never, Bean is the guy yeah, that I thinks. never heard anything about that. It seemed to come out of thin air. Maybe it's the Calgary Hitman connection. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think Jake Bean is, is something to worry about. Uh, I mean, if you can get him from 15 to 20, maybe that's all right. But uh, the thing about a player like Jake Bean, and this is a point that uh, Gareth Hole has made out, is that his assists didn't actually really jump this year. So when you look at the reasons why Jake Beans moved back into the first round, well, while we're talking about potential Canucks targets that they might get if they move down, um, his goal scoring is the only really tangible element of his production that went up. So it's kind of fair to wonder at this stage with Jake Bean how much of his uh, climb up the rankings was due in part to a rise in unsustainable shooting percentage. Right, like I think that's a fair question to ask, and maybe Jake Bean is being oversold by his statistical measures. Yeah, that's possible. And um, defensive scoring at the WHL level is not going to be the same as it is at, in the professional leagues, right? When uh, the players are so much bigger, it's so much harder to get your shots through the net. You don't see a lot of defensemen who are putting up goal totals because it's just so hard to get a puck all the way through there. It's all about hitting guys on the way in. And then you're, yeah. you're getting assists because you hit your teammate in the shin pad on the way to the net or something. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about Bean. His assist total is almost, like, plateaued. <laughs> they just stayed pretty much square even. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I kind of went off the off the topic there with Jake Bean. But at the end of the day, if you can trade down and you're the Canucks, do it because Jim Benning can draft well. Yes, he can. So the absolute not? best element of this regime is their drafting. Right. Hands down. Load as many bullets as you can into the chamber. What I was going to say. Fire downrange. That's right. And, yeah, to constantly, like, shoot yourself in the foot by not allowing yourself to play to your strengths over and over is just the most mystifying thing to me. But that's kind of another area. Um, in terms of just trading down, are you uh, aware of, Michael Shucker's work on this, uh, like the value of draft picks and stuff like that? Uh, yes, I am. And I think, um, holy crap, he's getting a lot of airtime this podcast, but uh, Gareth Ole <laughs> actually did uh, an article for Hockey Crabs. <laughs> he's probably getting chills up his spine. Um, no, he actually did an article on this 
uh, for hockey graphs on the exact same topic that I remember, which showed that basically after about the fourth overall pick, the value play is almost always to move down. I don't know if that's what Shuckers came to for his conclusion, but I, I seem to recall that basically after the fourth overall pick, it's almost always to your benefit to trade down. Yeah, he's done a lot of uh, different work, Shuckers has, and he's been quoted by a number of our favorite hockey bloggers. Um, Cam and Josh have both quoted his work before. Um, he uh, he does a, a whole chart of draft pick values, right from first all the way down to 210th. And uh, he had one that was floating around before. I think it might have been from 2011, but he published a brand new one this year just about uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, the whole thing is based on the first overall pick has a value of 1,000, and everything is scaled to that. And I believe it's all maybe on goals versus thresholds, some sort of value determination that they've done. It's basically like arithmetic almost, if you want to really dumb it down. And you can, like, say, according to this chart, the fifth overall pick has a value of 658, which it does. Right. Uh, you can trade that down. Now, I'm just pulling one out. Say the ninth pick, which is a value of 456, and the 23rd pick, which is 205, and that comes to about the same value. So if you were to trade the fifth overall pick for the ninth and the 23rd, that's a good value deal. That's basically how this works. Now, of course, the general managers, I'm pretty sure, are not carrying this around in their back pocket to determine whether or not these are good values. That's just a way of, for us to assess it. Right, right, and that's a generality, too. Right. It's not like it's the law. Right, uh, and you know, it works in, in funny ways because it's all about expected value for any specific pick. And this particular chart, it's um, based on the 2003 to 2008 drafts. So that's going to include any busts and disappointments as well as any overachievers who are in that draft class. So it might bring down the expected value of a particular pick. If you are a person like Jim Benning, who we seem to believe has a better than average scouting and drafting ability, if you scout and draft better than the average team, you should have a distinct advantage in this area. You might be able to trade, say that fifth pick for the ninth and the 23rd, and that would be even value according to this chart. But you should be able to get far greater value because just last year you picked Brock Besser 23rd, right? You're not going to do that every year, but if you can get better value picks for a position, then you should be able to shatter the values on this thing. Right. And uh, you also have to worry about what teams have picks. Arizona, for example, has the 7th and the 20th. That's a bit rich for the 5th pick. You're not going to get that, I don't think. Uh, but they also have a 37, so you might get 7 and 37. You might get 7, I don't know, 67 or something like that. Who knows? But there are options available there, especially if you, I mean, this is the hypo hypothetical situation again, but if you somehow got your hands on that fourth pick, you could trade it down for a late 10, late top 10 pick, and say a late second, early third rounder. You got your top defenseman there to replace what you lost in Ben Hutton in a couple of years. And who knows what else you get there. So these are other possibilities. Uh, there's a lot of teams that work these kind of trades all the time. Toronto did it a bunch of times last year. My favorite was when Toronto traded to uh, to secure Tyler Biggs, I think it was, 
and all it cost them was Rickard Raquel and John Gibson. Oh dear, sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> that should be like the one shining example of why you don't trade up. Like right there. Yeah. But there are opposite examples, right? That's uh, I true. Can go I believe... with, what do you want me to go with first? I can go an example of winning the trade going up or winning the trade going down. Winning the trade going up. Right. There's not as many of these as, as far as I can tell. Um, Zach Parise? I'm just going to go with, I think this is just last year's draft that I went over just briefly. And this, I mean, this is going to be a bit of conjecture because these players are still prospects. But there is a, uh, an assumption now that trading down for multiple assets is always the best idea. And it's only a good idea if, you know, you're a good drafter. You pick the right players. Last year, Tampa Bay traded away the 28th overall pick to New York for the 33rd and 72nd pick. New York got Anthony Bovillier with that pick. And uh, Tampa Bay, who just traded for these pick five spots later, as well as a mid-third round pick, which seems like good value, they picked Mitchell Stevens and Anthony Sorelli. Like, they're losing that deal. Yeah. Right? So that does happen from time to time. If you're going to do this, you got to do it right. So last year, Toronto had the 24th overall pick. And they got that from the Mike Santorelli, Cody Franzen trade with Nashville. They turned that pick into 29th and 61st by trading with Philadelphia. They then traded that 29th pick they got from Philly to Columbus and got the 34th and 68th. So to recap, they had the 24th from a like a deadline deal trade. So it's not even their own 24th, just when they picked up. And they turned that into three picks, 34, 61, 68. So basically 10 spots later and two early third round picks. That 24th right. ended up being um, Travis Konechny. And the three picks they got were Travis Dermott, Jeremy Bracco, and Martins Zierkals. Well, Zierkals, yeah. Right. But, you know. <laughs> right, but, you know, well, he's Latvian, so there's that. There is that. Um, his value, um, not great. But the other two, very good. Travis Dermott yeah. looks good. Jeremy Bracco looks pretty good as well, so... You know what, though? I would argue that Jeremy Bracco was the second best player on his line this year. Who was his line mates? Uh, I think he played a huge chunk of the year with Adam Mascheron. Right. I was just saying that to be controversial. <laughs> the contrary. <laughs> Even if I believe Anyways, regardless um, of uh, you know of that, he he still looks decent. He's not going to be. I don't know. He's probably not, he's not going to be the player that Travis Konechny is going to be. But it also depends on the needs within your organization. Like, given what Toronto has in their prospect pool, it might be better to have two good prospects and a, a whatever Zierkals is than just having Travis Konechny. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? I mean, the, these projections are so early. I mean, who knows? Maybe next year uh, Bracco lights the world on fire or Dermot takes that next step, right? I mean, that's that's the value in making these picks. Of course, the, the closer you are to the draft, because there's that market difference, the pick you trade down and the pick you get, uh, immediately you're going to notice that the pick that you gave away is, is the better prospect at first. Right. It's almost always going to look like that. But, um, you know, with a little added time and development, who knows? I think that's the beauty of it, right? Yeah, all of this is is uh, 
like I said, is conjecture. And the difference between 24th and 34th in terms of expected value is not that big. No. And to get two picks in the 60s in addition to that, that's probably going to be a win as well, just in terms of odds. Yeah, I mean, the further back that you get, too, because some teams will be trading. I mean, when you're you're doing stuff like that, you're trading uh, like a late first or even like a late second for a couple of later picks. We talked about this last week. Once you get past the mid to late second round, you've basically plateaued in value. Yeah. And some people might not think of it that way. And if you catch someone who's forgetful of that, you might be able to get two picks, even if you're, say you're trading something like the, a late 40s pick for a pick in the 60s and another one in the somewhere in the mid-100s. It seems like the one in the 40s should be a much better deal. But if you're drafting well, the expected value of these picks is really not that far off. So it is a bit of a two-for-one deal, or maybe a 1.75-for-one deal. Yeah, it's, it's a market inefficiency. It's ripe for the exploiting, and I think Maple Leafs did a pretty good job of that last year. Right, and time will tell how all their prospects turn out, but there's uh, absolutely nothing wrong with the doubling down or tripling down on, on these kinds of prospects, especially when they can do really funny things, like go in, they decide which their five worst prospects are, and then they pile them up in a bundle and send them to New York for Michael Grabner. Right. For, for whatever I was kind of reason. wondering where you were going with that yeah. for, for half a second. I was like, oh, yeah, grab me. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if you can just keep doing that, because you can only have so many players on your reserve list. You can't just pick 15 guys every year, right? But if you can do something like that and trade away all these guys and get a uh, basically a rental player in return, and then who knows? You could trade that guy for a pick. It's yeah. like. The continuous value obviously it hasn't led to I mean there's going to be people who will say it hasn't led to real success yet like Pierre McGuire yeah well that's the thing about planning for one year as opposed to planning for ooh, I don't know five or six right I believe McGuire had said something about um, when he was one of the many times he was dismissing analytics about, hasn't uh, worked in Toronto yeah. <laughs> look look how much they suck yeah with all their... yeah you know what did work for Toronto Randy Carlyle and Dave Nonis. That worked. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like the hubris of some of these people is is, is just astounding. I, I can't imagine like actually saying that about Toronto in particular. I mean, I still think that his, his best moment was when he uh, dismissed analytics again. I can't remember the exact comment. And then like two minutes later he said, I can't figure out what's wrong with the Colorado Avalanche. <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah. That was... Uh, that was 100 emoji. Very little foresight there. Yep. Anyways, well, uh... hey, speaking of people who are dismissing analytics, the <laughs> next topic on my bullet sheet, Corsi for Dummies. Yes. Yes, and, and you would just happen to be talking about a, a certain Benjamin Wendorf article on hockey graphs, right? I was. Yeah, that was so good. Okay, people, you have to go to hockey graphs and you have to read this article. It won't take much of your time, and there is a crying Jordan. Yes, there is. You, you you do not want to pass up opportunities to see crying Jordan somewhere mm. for the one millionth time in 2016. Makes me laugh every time. Yeah. I believe I have in my notes right here 
Benjamin Wendorf dunks on Mike Kelly. <laughs> well, why don't you uh, why don't you set this one up for everybody? Because I think you're you're the more analytic savvy of the two of us. I'll, I'll let you take the floor and, and tell them about this article on uh, on, on I believe it's Corsi and shot share and the relationship between the two right and um <laughs> this article doesn't need a lot of time it's not very long you've read it but this came about because mike kelly and it, whoever's familiar with mike kelly he is um he's a stats guy former tsn uh that's hockey tonight stats guy right and his um his takes on stats are typically pretty terrible and this is a well-known thing in the hockey community so the uh, the analytics guys like to take shots at him from time to time. He tweeted out for, I have no idea why, today, that there's never been a meaningful correlation between shot attempts and puck possession. It's a poor proxy, he says. Shot attempts are valuable but do not equal possession. There's some problems with this right off the get-go, which we'll get to. But um, Benjamin Wendorf, well-known stats fellow, hockey graphs guy, seemed to take a defense to this and decided to go out and show that there is in fact a correlation between shot attempts and actual possession and he wrote a hockey graphs article that contains all of two sentences and a single graph and you guys should really be going to hockeygraphs.com or it's like hockey-graphs.com you should know what hockey graphs is and check this thing out the title of the article is relationship of possession to shots for by benjamin wendorf and the graph is just a slightly positive correlation between actual puck possession and shot attempts for with crying Jordan in the background and the R squared and R of the graph printed therein so I think it's beautiful it is beautiful and it's made the uh, analytics guys feel real good about themselves anyways to get back to why this is actually a problem um, they're missing the entire point of this the whole thing with Corsi being a proxy for puck possession, we all know that shooting a puck in the net is not the same thing as holding onto the puck. And the reason it's designed to be a proxy for puck possession is it, it's supposed to be indicative. If you're taking a lot of shots towards the net, it probably means that you have the puck a lot. That should make sense to most people. There are people who are smart to a certain level but can't get their brains past you know, a certain step who think... If you actually go and uh, graph the correlation between puck possession and shot attempts, it's not as high as maybe you think it would be. It's certainly not a perfect correlation. So they might be thinking, well, what am I looking at here? That's not even that strong of a correlation. So maybe we should be looking at something else to use for puck possession. Or maybe we should be just timing puck possession numbers themselves, and that's how we should be doing all of our fancy stats from now on. Well, it's about it's about finding meaningful possession, right? And I think the thing to remember here, and it often gets lost in the mix, is that your uh, core, your correlations in hockey, your, your R squareds, uh, are never really that strong. Which isn't to say that there isn't value in what we're analyzing. It's to say that there is a lot of randomness in hockey. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, one of the other things is even though we're using shots for short attempts, that kind of thing, as a proxy for possession, that's not really the end goal. We just have the idea that puck possession is good and puck possession leads to winning, but what the end game is actually winning. 
right? So what we know is score-adjusted Corsi correlates highly with winning. And it correlates highly with goals. Goals are good, wins are good. It actually score-adjusted Corsi actually correlates higher with winning than pure puck possession time does. So the yes. fact that they don't line up perfectly is actually a bit irrelevant. Because we're not just going for holding on to the puck as long as possible. Like you said, we're going for a useful possession. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's not very useful possession if you're not launching the puck on net. <laughs> right. Seems intuitive. You think so? Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of at the point about uh, analytics in hockey where it's like, you know, power T, if you don't want to make that a part of how you enjoy the game, like, a, I don't think anybody should tell you or anyone else how to enjoy hockey. But I'm kind of beyond arguing the meaningfulness of this data in hockey. Yeah. <laughs> like, 110% done. Yeah. So I have a part two in this Corsi for Dummies segment, and that was a tweet that was sent to our account earlier today. Oh, yes, I think I know which one you're yeah, talking well, about. It, you're tagged in it as well. Um, and the question is, can you guys put up a link on your site that plainly and simply says whether a player has good, bad, or average fancy stats? There are a myriad of problems with this request. Well, I think the, the follow-up tweet he sent was because Corsi stats are basically a mix of Greek, Finnish, and Chinese to me, all of which I have no time to learn. Yeah. You know what? I think on some levels that might be a fair bit of criticism in the sense that as a writer, your job is not to tell somebody what's happening. It is to show them what is happening. And in the sense that perhaps some of what we're saying when we just start uh, vomiting numbers all over the page uh, might not be as accessible as if we were to say, this player is helping his team control the share of shots. Um, if we were to make it more descriptive, I think it's it's less a critique of the, the stats themselves than the, than the descriptive language we're using to uh, convey what we're trying to say to our audience. Yeah, and we're always looking for better ways, at least I am, better ways, more, descript more descriptive ways of uh, explaining what any quote-unquote fancy stat is actually referring to and whenever I'm writing I always like to write out the full name of the stats and then maybe I'll bracket what the um, abbreviation is and use that later on but if someone for some reason has never read anything on fancy stats before and comes and sees something like p60 even though it's a relatively simple uh, term I like to spell it out for everyone the first time right uh, but I you know, I'm, wasn't even totally sure what the request is here. Like a, this sort of looks a little bit like is he looking for a link for every single player in the NHL and us just right next to them? You know, have like name in one column and in the second column just say good, bad, or average fancy stats. Right, right, and and you know it's never going to be that simple. And I think uh, more to the point, it shouldn't be that simple. No. I think the value in Hashtag fancy stats is that it uh, it breaks down the game into all these little uh, individual small pieces of the puzzle for you to put together, and like I reject the idea that somebody is a good fancy stats player. It's it's we have fancy stats that show this player is good. Here's why. Right. Right. Like there's no bad fancy stats player. There are bad players. Yeah, and. Uh... I mean, good fancy stats and bad fancy stats means different things to different people. 
And it also depends on which stat we're talking about. Right. Like, there's so many different ways to spin this, right? Yeah, and you can simplify it as well. Uh, if you were to say, this guy has good stats. You know, if you're not even talking about fancy stats, you say, this player A has good stats. Like, what are you talking about? Does he have good goal totals, good point totals? I don't know. Does he hit a lot? I don't know. Take a lot of penalties? Take not very many penalties? It's ambiguous. And fancy stats are even worse than that because we group fancy stats into a number of different, uh, I don't know, categories. Possession would be one of them. Production, rate production, that kind of thing would be another. Deployment. So to say that a guy has good fancy stats is a little bit misleading. Like, are you talking that he, does he score at a good rate for the amount that he plays? Does he have good puck possession? Does he have good shot suppression? Yeah, it's, it's almost as if we're, um, they're asking us to use analytics as a monolithic approach to player evaluation, in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, of course, not what we aim to do. Right. There's also the problem that there's, I don't know, what, 650 players in the NHL or something like that? Yeah. I so don't want to good... make a list of every single player and put good, better, average beside them. Yep. I don't know. Good's relative. Yeah. <laughs> good compared yeah, to what? Yes. Well, I don't know. I think that's a that's a solid note to end on. A fancy stats rant. Yeah. I mean, we didn't squeeze any Sven. Yes, it all makes sense. There was no Sven Berchi. Do you want to talk We're, about Sven uh, Berchi? No, no, no. no. I, I got to go do me things. Okay, if you say so. I just want to say that Sven Berchi is an amazing hockey player. And I, that's fair. I can't wait to see him again next year. I concur. Yeah. But uh, for now, I have been J.D. Burke. He has been Jeremy Davis. We're now on iTunes. Subscribe. Review us. Only if it's positive, preferably. And we'll be back <laughs> next week. With another... Pardon? You love the hate. Yeah, I do, but not on the podcast. Let's keep that uh, a nice, positive okay, working environment. And we will catch you next week with more Canucks ramblings. Thank you. See you. Yeah, I was a little bit spaced out today. Yeah, that's fine. I gotta go make dinner. I'm fucking starving. Peace, buddy.